Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Nehemiah 7. Uh, quick summary, Nehemiah 1 and 2. Nehemiah gets this burden and he prays about it. God gives them the opportunity, he prays about it. Chapter 3, list of the heroes that built the wall, which is a huge answer to prayer. Chapter 4, there's adversarial attacks, threats, and scoffing, and then he prays, and then he prays, and then he prays. And then in chapter 5 and 6, there was weariness. The response to that was more prayer. And then there were distractions, and then he prayed. And then there were lies and threats, and then he prays again. I don't know if you see a pattern, but this is Nehemiah. This is how he does spiritual warfare. This is how he does battle. Um, accounting is in chapter 7. So you're looking in your Bibles at chapter 7, and you're like, oh my goodness. We're going to get through this list, and then we're going to do the next chapter, which actually has like some more actual kind of history content. Um, then it was, uh, when the wall was built, I had hung the doors. And when the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and he feared God more than many. Really, this is the content for chapter 7 that we can think about. The physical walls and doors get built and the spiritual gatekeepers, singers, and Levites are put into place. Nehemiah, what he's known for here is both the practical, physical things that need to be taken care of, building the walls, but he's also tending to the spiritual things that need to be taken care of. And this is the nature of God's people gathering. There's both spiritual needs, but there's also practical needs on getting things done. The purpose here is to build a place for God's people to worship and to honor God. So he's got enemies throughout Nehemiah, the flesh, the world, any spiritual enemies. And they have things to say about this activity, but it doesn't stop the activity from happening. You don't stop because the world says to stop. Then you get Hananiah and Hananiah, similar names. They both mean gracious the Hananiah or the extension just adds Yahweh at the end, which is God has graced or the grace of God. Um, for he was um, the peace there. And, and again, this is where it is. Um, my brother Hanani, which would be like the reason for Hananiah, is he's the guy that came to him in chapter 1 and said there's problems in Jerusalem. The person that had the original calling or concern about Jerusalem is now put in charge of Jerusalem. And then you have and Hananiah, which is the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. That's the reason he was put into place. So one of them is like somebody he could trust that had the initial burden. The second person is just a faithful man that feared God. And, I, and honestly, I just, here's the core of the church. This is how leadership gets picked. Somebody who's been faithful shows that over time. Faithfulness is not just, I'm super excited and I really want to do this thing. Faithfulness is being a servant and being there and doing the work even before the credit is given or even before there's a, a title attached to it. So some people look at this and say the name's grace there, that there's this double portion of grace. You have Hanani and Hananiah. And the idea is here like this is kind of a double portion of grace. If it wasn't, if it was just one, you would have Han solo. Just want to point yeah. that out. And the, the idea is that this is a family situation, but it's also a heart for God situation. Do you like that one, Grant? Okay, glad you like that. Um, 
And then the other thing, if you remember one of the accusations, it was that, that Nehemiah wants to be this tyrant over everybody. But here is the tyrant handing off authority to somebody else. So the, the truth of the matter, which we never saw Nehemiah defend himself, the truth of the matter is he didn't want to lord over this situation. He wanted to go back to his duties in, in Persia and to take care of that. So a peaceful transition of power that doesn't involve necessarily the king handing things off to a son. This is a fairly unique historical tradition where people don't grab onto power and hold on for dear life. It's a model of a godly person saying, I can serve for a season and then I can walk away from that service and hand it off to somebody else. Frankly, this is a, an image or an idea that even the founding fathers of America embraced. What if we have leadership that only serves for a season? And when their work is done or they've had time to carry out that vision, they peacefully hand over the government to somebody else. And we have a series of volunteer leaders for our country. It, it was a really novel idea, but one of the sources of that idea was this peaceful transition that we see in Nehemiah 7 verse 2. Um, a promise to go back to Persia was back in chapter 2-6. Remember he said to the king, I'm just going to go to this thing. So Nehemiah is keeping his promise. He's a uh, doesn't say when he'll return, um, but he's going to come back to Jerusalem effectively 12 years later. And so he, but for now, he's going back to fulfill um, his promise to the king, and then eventually the king sends him back. So, verse 3, um, he gives them responsibilities. Again, this is how do, both practical and spiritual things get handed off amongst the people of God. Here's this thing that I had to do, but at this point I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to hand off responsibility. Verse 3, And I said to them, Don't let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And when they stand guard, let them shut the door, shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. The walls don't do anything if they're not maintained. It doesn't do any good for Nehemiah to set up Jerusalem if they're not going to take care of Jerusalem. And part of taking care of Jerusalem is to recognize there's still a very real threat of attack that's out there somewhere. So to be like viable and to be rational is to have some common sense around this. And when he says until the sun is hot, that basically means mid-morning. And the idea is like you don't open the gates of the city until you've got a full guard. Everybody's at their station and everybody's ready to go. And, if, and this is a, a, a very practical advice. Why would you open up your facility until you got the people in place that you need to do it? Uh, Red Wing's having this issue right now. They're going from a building with one door where they need two people to welcome folks at the door, but they're moving to a building that now has three doors and they might be going to two services, which means now they need, at each of the three doors, they need two people. So now you're at six people for two services. They need to go from two volunteers to 12 in a one Sunday transition. And this is part of what Nehemiah does. He establishes who's going to do those things. He sets it up. He makes sure that things are taken care of so that you're being good stewards with what you've been given. And the idea of being at the watch station and another in front of his own house, a theme in Nehemiah is this idea of family by family responsibility. We're going to see it again in this next two chapters. And I love the idea that if you're just serving the church and you don't serve your family, you're actually not serving the church at all. And when churches call on families to do more than what that family can handle, that's abusive. But when you can take care of your family and then serve the church and keep those things in balance, that's good. 
the other things on the other side, it's also on if all you do is serve your family and you never help set the watch or take care of things at the church, that's being selfish. And you're not serving your brothers and sisters and trying to build something with them. So there's this, again, with the Christian faith, there's a balance. You can't just do ministry and fail your family, and you can't just do family and fail your, fail your spiritual body. There has to be some kind of balance between those two things. And what does that look like? And that's between you and Jesus. That looks different for every family. Some families are set up in a way where people have more time to serve in the church. And those people that serve more in the church should never turn on the people that serve less and assume that they're less spiritual or less blessed by God. Because they might be in a, you know, if you, the next time you have a family with 12 kids, let's see how often those people have time to serve in the church, right? It's just, they got a different family dynamic and a different thing to do. So, and I would also say this, sometimes people serve in the church, but their family night dynamic changes, and then they feel guilty and they don't reduce their time with the church to take care of the family. And what happens is you get burnt out families because over time the needs and the abilities change too. What this leads to, one at his watch station and another in front of his house, is that family by family you got to find a balance of who's going to be where and who's going to do what and who's going to serve in what kind of ways. And that looks different. Verse 4, now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not rebuilt. They just built a church that was too big for the congregation, right? Maybe they're, you know, apparently they did it at the command of God. Not apparently, that was verse chapter one. Um, but the idea is the people in it, there was too few and they write this down as a problem. We don't build, when we build for the church, we don't build for too few people. We build for too many people. You'll notice there's extra chairs in the room right now. That means we have room to seat more people. And as a people of God, and, a, and, and I think it's an interesting model that we see in this example here, there's the idea of like, we need to make sure that we always have room for guests and that we've facilitated that. Sometimes we have more food than we need on a Sunday. I think that's a good thing because we're expecting that there might be more people here. And if God wants to grow it, we've done our part. And it also says the houses were not rebuilt. Uh, now that the proper worship for the community has been built, it's time to get to work on homes and families and building up families, forming a new kind of mission in Nehemiah. The walls are built, the temple's built, the sacrifice is built. All the things are built for what God asked for. And then God's like, go ahead and take care of your homes and build your families. Verse 5, then my God put it to my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it. That's a reference to Ezra chapter 2. We saw a list there too. In Ezra chapter 2, I went through the names. If you want the study that goes through the names, go back and listen to Ezra chapter 2. Tonight, I'm not going to go through every single name in this chapter. I'm, I know, Paul. I could do a speed read and blast through it. Okay. Um, I'll highlight some things, and I'll let you kind of skim through these. But we did go through all these names back in Ezra chapter 2, so I'll let you be there. And I'll answer to Alyssa and Zach whenever they hear the podcast saying I skipped words. Here's the point. In, this, in, the, in verse 5, the fact that God puts it in his heart. Nehemiah is faithful in doing the first work that God gave him. And he's still praying and asking for another work. And I think this is an interesting principle. In Matthew 25, 23, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. And I love that. I'd like to stop right there. But you have been good or faithful over a few things. 
I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of my Lord. When people do little things for the people of God and you do a good work and you're like, oh, that was nice. And the Lord's like, well done, good and faithful servant. Now I'm going to give you more responsibility and opportunities within the church. It grows. And it's interesting to see like how this works in the life of people. Um, Steph laughs because she knows me from 20 years ago and she kn- knew that never in a million years would I imagine that I'd be teaching through God's word on a Sunday. The idea though that you do little things for the church and you're faithful in the small things, that God gives opportunities and, and gives you a more opportunity and the end result of that is joy. Nehemiah is experiencing that right here. He finishes building the walls of Jerusalem and then God puts it on his heart to do the next thing, which is to build the people and to actually minister to the flock. Chapter 11, we're going to see the, the leaders um, start to dwell in the city. And we're going to see the end number is about 1 in 10 um, people or of the returning Jews, about 1 in 10 of them actually come to occupy Jerusalem and offer to live there. So it is not everybody that fills up Jerusalem, but some people feel called to it. And I think of the missions field and what that looks like. Amongst a body of people, it's not everybody in the body that gets called to every single part of the service. But in different seasons of your life, you might be helping with worship, setup, food, greeting, hospitality, security, teaching ministry. There might be different things you do at different seasons of your life where you're kind of moving around, helping with a lot of different things. Amen. Chapter 2, he did a circuit of the city to assess the needs and find the holes. I think that's what chapter 7 is. He's doing the same thing, only in a spiritual way. He's taking a survey of the people. So he puts it on his heart, and we know this is part of the personality of Nehemiah. Before he jumps, he looks, and he gets a survey of the land before he starts doing anything. And he did this back in the earlier chapters, I think Ezra chapter 2. He does that circuit of the city to see the physical needs, and now he's doing a circuit of the people to see what the family needs are and what's there. So verse 6, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who'd been carried away whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. This is the first wave. We know that because of verse 7. It says Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the leader of the first wave, and right alongside him was a guy named Yeshua, who was the high priest that came back with the first wave. So Yeshua and Zerubbabel start this whole movement. Um, And then I'll get this from the list too. God values names. I think I say this every time we get to a list chapter. God actually sees and recognizes what you're doing in life. And a lot of these names, these are the only mentions in the Bible of them, but to God, they're worth recording and it's worth it for God for us to come and study this. It's good for our learning and our reproof. And one thing is good to know about God is that God keeps lists and he recognizes work and he recognizes the people that bless the people of God. You get credit for these things. And so when we see that in the scripture multiple times, I think that's an idea for us to just absorb a few times. Whatever you do for the kingdom of God, God will remember that and and he will account for that at some point. The number of men and people of Israel, the sons of Parash, etc., etc., etc. It lists the head of the household and the number of people that were part of the heads of smaller families that were there. So verse 10 the sons of Era would be a whole group of people, but 652 would include just the men or the heads of household, the heads of individual families. So that number changes. You can generally take that number then and triple or quadruple it to account for larger birth rates than we have today and wives. 
and it goes on. The sons of, and then the number that goes with it. All the way down to verse 38, the sons of Sena, 3,930. At the end of the day, when you add all of this up, it's about 2% of the Babylonian exile population that chooses to come back to, to Jerusalem. I think that's amazing. Of all these Jews, you'd think they'd be running from captivity, getting the heck out of Babylon, going back to their homeland. But most people had made homes and set themselves up, and it only took 70 years for 98% of the Jewish people to just say, we're going to turn into Iraqis, and we're just going to stay here. The other piece is that 98% that stays back has earned some credibility, both with the story of Esther and the ministry of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we get those stories in other places. Um, but there's a small remnant that come back to rebuild this kind of outpost in Jerusalem, and they build it. Malachi speaks of another book that records names. And I want to point this out too, just this idea of listing of names. There is actually a book mentioned in Malachi that holds your name in it. Malachi 3.16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them, so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and meditate on his name. If that's you, your name is in a book that looks like chapter 7 somewhere in heaven. I would love to go find that book and look up your name with you so when we get to heaven, I'd love to come and find your name in that book. And actually, it's more important that I find you in there in heaven with me. But that idea of those who fear the Lord and meditate on his name. And in the Old Testament, they didn't even know the name, but we actually know the name now. It's Jesus. And what an awesome thing that there's a book out there with your name in it. Fear the Lord, meditate on his name, and ask yourself the question, is that me? Am I that person? And if you are, there's promises that you'll be in that book that you can have assurance in. And if you doubt if God keeps his promises, well, there's the entire Old Testament to make that argument. The priests, sons of Jediah are all in there. Verse 43 has the Levites. Verse 44 has the singers. Verse 45 has the gatekeepers. What you're seeing there is the ministry team. So all these families make up the people of God. It's not that big of a group. And then you got these families that are actually serving in a little bit more sacrificial level. Like they're committing their lives to the ministry. I don't think this means these folks are more important than the other folks. I think the people of God are made up of a mix of both. You have some people called to more intensive ministry and some people that aren't. But here they are again. If you get to verse 46, the Nethanim. Every single listing of God's people that we have has this mixed multitude, the Goy, the, the Gentiles, that are mixed in with them. The Nethanim have been there since the beginning. They've been there since when Moses pulled the Israelites out of, out of Egypt. There were Egyptians and other people living there that said, I'm going to put the blood of the lamb over my doorpost, and I'm heading out with the Jews. And so, thankfully, that hasn't changed one bit today. In fact, we're large, unless there's Jewish people in the room, I think we're largely a group of Nephanim. We're people that choose to follow Jesus, the Messiah of the Jews, and stay with them. Verse 57 has a second group, the sons of the Solomon servants. A lot of people believe, based on the names, that those are that during the time of Solomon, there were a group of people from Africa that came up, namely because of Sheba's interaction with Solomon. And there were a number of Africans that came and moved in and lived with the Jews that were carried off to Babylon with them and now have come back. And they, in verse 57 and 58 and 59, they actually make up a whole category of what is now turned into Israel. And again, like, 
this argument that, that Jesus runs into where the Jewish, you have to be Jewish to be part of the, the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus comes up against that, but he's doing it based on Old Testament teachings. It's not something that Jesus introduces as, now we're going to let the Gentiles in. The Gentiles were always allowed in. The Pharisees were starting to block them off, and that's when God shows up in person. We will not have that happen because he's the God of the world, not just the God of the Jews. So the sons of Solomon, the Nethanim in verse 46, down to verse 60, all the Nethanim and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Okay, so it's not a large number, um, but... You know, these are these are heads of household, and without these records, we would we, we would we would have a hard time contradicting the Pharisees that the Gentiles don't have a place in the kingdom of God. Such an ingrained idea by the first century, which is only 400 years away, but 400 years is a long time for people to change their minds on things. But even the disciples had a hard time reconciling this idea that non-Jews would be part of the kingdom, and like. Jesus had to show up in a dream to Peter to get him to get this idea through his head. So then you get to verse 61. This is an interesting group. Here's a group of people that don't have records. Like they can't, they don't have their licenses with them or their passport. They don't have any way to identify their family group. And they're like, we're Jewish. Really, we're Jewish. We just can't prove it. And these were the ones who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Imner. These are all Babylonian cities but they could not identify their father's house. So they don't know where they fit in the lineage. This is, I think, an attack on Satan because the lineage is this important to the Jewish people. The Jewish people are looking for Messiah from the tribe of Judah, from the family of Jesse, the descendants of the throne of David, and, the dis and this family tree thing becomes really important. Where for some families that aren't necessarily part of Judah, this lineage gets lost while they're in Babylon. Part of living out in the world is they lose track of their inheritance and they lose track of where they should have land promises in the, in the promised land. So does that mean you kick them out? Heck no, that's not what that means. We got to read on. So they, don't, they could not identify their father's house nor their lineage, whether they were of Israel, verse 62, the sons of Delia, Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. And then the priests... So they got a group of priests that don't know their heritage. That's tough because you have to be a Levite and you have to be of the family of Aaron to do these duties. You have to be of these different families to do priestly duties. So here's people saying, we're of the priest class, but they can't prove it. They don't have the paperwork. This is a really interesting, what I would call historicity element. When you doubt the lineages or the family trees of Judah, the implication here is, each family was required to keep their own family tree. Do you even know what kind of database that creates in the ancient world? Every family has to keep proof of family lineage all the way back to Israel, Jacob. That creates an amazing set source of data where I could compare your family tree to my family tree. And if we were cousins, we could see if we had the same family trees. So it creates, a, what God's done here is he's meant that we can rely on Matthew chapter 1. We can rely on the family trees that we see in the Gospels. And we can rely on the family trees that we see in the Old Testament. They're not just the, the single writer that makes that. These would be things that could be contested by any head of household that has his own records. Verse 64, they sought their listing amongst those who were registered by genealogy. They're checking other documents and sources. 
but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. Again, this the defiled here isn't like you're dirty and you can never serve. The defiled is your records are corrupt and we can't we can't prove it, so we don't want to risk your life putting you in a situation where God could hold that against you. And the governor said, this was the decision, verse 65. I think we saw this in Ezra too. He said to them that you should not eat of the most holy things until a priest could consult with the Urim and Thurim. This We haven't seen the Urim and Thummim for a long time, but what this tells us is the Urim and Thummim have not gone away. Here we are 400 years up to Jesus Christ, 1,500 years of Jewish tradition, and they're still mentioning the Urim and the Thummim like we know what that is. And what it was is probably two stones, a black one and a white one, that was in the pouch of the high priest. And the idea was, when we really don't know, and we don't have scripture to back it up, and God's not telling us anything directly, and common sense doesn't give us a clear path, at the end of the day, sometimes we can go to the Urim and the Thummim. Acts chapter 1 has them doing this by drawing straws with the new disciple. We didn't get there this morning. But the Urim and the Thummim are there, and the idea of the governor in verse 65 is, we're going to get that sorted out, but we need to have the priest identify this. They need to bring Michael into the, the inner courtyard, and then they're going to draw the Urim and saying, is this guy of the priestly on of Aaron? And then they'll bring it out, and if God puts the right color in the hand, then God is approved that he can go into the work for the priesthood. So again, it's not defiled like these people can never serve, but they're defiled to the point until they can seek God's counsel on this. And even if God's like, you know, changing his mind on things, at least the Urim and Thummim is like, okay, God, you told us he was okay to go. So they move forward that way. Again, more details in the Ezra chapter 2 study. Altogether, the whole assembly was 42,360. God likes records. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 men, women, and, and, and women singers. I like that at this point, this is the heritage of David. Like, counting the singers is now a thing for Israel. Like, and 245 men and women singers? That's a like, can you name 245 pop artists that are still making albums today? Like, think of the number of singers we have as a country versus the number of singers per capita they had as a country. This makes Israel the most music-centered nation that I think has ever walked the earth. That's a lot of professional musicians walking around, being taken care of by the temple. Their horses were 736. It's not a lot. Their mules, 245. I don't know how they built the walls with that many mules. Their camels, 435, and their donkeys, 6,720. Again, what we see in this list is a really modest accounting of beasts of burden. These numbers are not large. If you go back and look at the solemn uh, numbers, they were in the tens and hundreds of thousands on some of these. So these are really modest, even poor accounts for this many people. Verse 70. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. I love this. Even the leadership was pitching in. And there's just this idea of just because you're in charge doesn't mean you don't get your, your brow sweaty. The governor gave to the treasury 100 1,000 gold, 1, gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 priestly garments. So they give to the work and they jump in and do this. They're also giving of their financial resources to help do this. So people are giving based on what they can afford. Some of the heads of the father's houses gave 
to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas, and that which was the rest of the people gave 20,000 gold drachmas. So think about this. The governor gives 1,000, all the rich people give 20,000, and the rest of the population gives 20,000. This is an interesting thing. There's no set amount as to how much they need to give to the work. Oh, 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. There's no set amount for how much people give, but everybody gives. And God set this up way back in Leviticus. Not everybody gives a bull for a sacrifice. Some people catch a pigeon and give that for a sacrifice. If you can't give out of your, your profit, you give out of your time. And so this idea of that there's a balance here and it's, it's not tax the rich, it's the rich voluntarily giving to a work alongside everybody else. And this is Israel. This is what it should look like. Donations are recorded and accounted for. Another lesson for the church. You don't just sloppily keep track of these things. You keep a record of it. So you know how much money's coming in and they write it down, which gives us an example to follow. Um, and, and we try to model that too. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. This is kind of a hinge point in the whole book of Nehemiah. Chapters 1 through 7 see the completion of the great work. And we get the list of, 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 all, of who came in chapter 2 and the people that kind of stayed and, and resided there here in chapter 7. No mention of the wall in this chapter. I don't think that was the key to chapter 7. I think the key to chapter 7 is the people that built the wall. And again, I think we, you've heard this before. The church isn't the building. The church is the people who built the building. The people who are maintaining the church is the people. And, and I, I think in chapter 7 we see that too. It, it, again, the wall was simply so that the people of God could meet in a place where they didn't have to worry about getting killed. And that's a good thing in the Bible. Like It's okay to have safety while we study God's Word. So it's also in the seventh month. This is the holiest month. They have three feasts in the seventh month. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, which we call Yom Kippur, and they have the Feast of Tabernacles. The, and that's going to be important in the next chapter. The wall allows God's people to dwell and to put God first actually results in a better life for the people of God. It results in feasts. And, and this is the end result. And again, I don't think we serve God because we want the feast. We serve God because we love God. And, and, and it's our reasonable service to serve God. However, there is a divine perfection to the completion of a work of God and the, and the enjoyment of God's people in that. Rich and poor, men and women, Jew and Gentile, all coming together to serve and worship God. 